Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. One of the reasons that I wanted to make this podcast was to help bring attention to areas in healthcare that typically are underrepresented. And we spend a lot of time discussing on the podcast about representation in healthcare, but it's also making sure that there's better awareness of individual topics. One of those many areas is Native American health. And I'm ecstatic to have the opportunity to bring, to shed additional light on some really fantastic work that is going on in the state of Oklahoma with the Cherokee Nation um, through uh, a new medical institution. And uh, simply listening to this week's guest and having the opportunity to get a better understanding of the work that's going on, the cultural attention that is required uh, to ensure that uh, excellent and adequate care is being provided with to those in the Cherokee Nation and in collaboration with uh, the state of Oklahoma is incredibly important. So I'm excited about this episode. Uh, I was enlightened after this conversation, and I hope you are too. Okay, I see it up and running. All right. Well, welcome to this episode of Crossing the Chasm, and I am very happy to be joined by Dr. Natasha Bray. Uh, a little bit of background about Dr. Bray. She uh, has a fantastic amount of experience uh, and is um, one of our, at least I think, should be one of our more celebrated educators um, in, the, in the country. Uh, she currently serves as a dean of the Cherokee Nation campus for Oklahoma State University Center for Health Sciences. Uh, she also um, has uh, a lot of experience in terms of additional education, in terms of working through Nova Southeastern University, Broward, uh, Broward Health, the Arkansas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Uh, her background is that she uh, Received her bachelor's uh, at the uh, University of Tulsa, her master's of education at Nova Southeastern University, uh, her doctor of osteopathic medicine at Oklahoma State University of College of uh, Osteopathic Medicine, and completed a residency in internal medicine at the Philadelphia College of uh, Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Bray. So happy to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be with you today um, and really appreciate the kind invitation. Well, um, so excited. So uh, as we always do uh, in the episode, and I don't want to belabor the point, but we want to hear your story. How did you end up doing what you're doing and uh, being where you are? So um, I think one of the things before I start telling my story that I always like to share, especially for students and residents who listen to podcasts, is um, you don't always know where life's going to take you. So be willing to take chances and look for opportunities. I grew up, um, my dad was a family practice doctor in western rural Oklahoma and really provided comprehensive family medicine care. He cradled a grave. He delivered babies and took care of patients uh, through their 
end of life. So I grew up around medicine and knew that that was something that I wanted to pursue. As you said, I graduated from the University of Tulsa and went to medical school at Oklahoma State, which is actually where my dad had graduated from. So it was a great fit for me. And then life happened. I had married my high school sweetheart and he was a mechanical engineer, was his original uh, degree, but he decided he wanted to go to law school and that took us to the East Coast so he could um, have that opportunity to do that. And um, pursued internal medicine, ended up also um, meeting qualifications to get board certified in addiction medicine. And after being on the Northeast Coast for, you know, I guess four years total as part of our, our residency training in his law school, we made the firm decision we did not like snow. Um, and it was really that simple of a decision. When we started looking at where are we going to go for our careers, what does that look like? Um, my criteria was somewhere that never had more than three to four days of snow a year. I was done with that. So we ended up in Miami, Florida. Um, Matt had taken a job with a law firm there, and I went to Nova Southeastern and took a teaching job. And again, those those little bridge things that nobody likes to talk about, but my intention in taking a teaching job was, one, I loved being a general internal medicine doc. I loved working as a hospitalist. I loved being in the hospital. But the job at Nova Southeastern allowed me to work as a hospitalist at Broward Health. I got to work with residents, but I also got to be at the medical school which was important to me, but really it was it was meant to be a bridge. I was going to do it for two years, apply for fellowship. I wanted to have a baby and start a family. And so it seemed like this kind of perfect plan. What I didn't anticipate is that I would fall in love with teaching. Um, so that opportunity to actually work with students, watch them develop their passion for medicine and help see how really that thought process develops. How do we go from using knowledge to talking to people and being being with them as they make their health decisions and making those connections and watching students develop skills in that was really meaningful. So, you know, fast forward 20 years and I can't imagine myself doing anything else. I, I have to admit at this point, I don't get to be at the bedside as much as I did when I was in Florida as a program director. You still get to be at the bedside with um, with residents and with patients. Um, but I do still work one weekend a month as a hospitalist for the Choctaw Nation because I think that there's something really meaningful as an educator to go back and connect to why we do what we do. So setting at the bedside, hearing patients' stories, um, providing care to the best of our abilities is really is really a gift that we all are given as physicians. We get to be part of their lives in a meaningful way. Um, so I, I did a lot of things for Nova. Um, other career advice that I would throw out there for people, um, be careful about interim titles. Um, interim titles tend to become permanent titles. So <laughs> If, if you don't want to do that position, um, maybe don't take the interim title. Um, I, I went from being just a faculty member to being internal medicine program director at Broward Health. Um, I became the DIO um, at Broward Health, which is the designated institutional official. So the person who's over all of the residency programs. And I discovered another passion that I had um, really in that role. And that was looking at accreditation standards 
and how do we use those accreditation standards to create learning opportunities for medical education in areas where other people aren't necessarily out. So what I mean by that is a lot of times um, residency programs and medical schools tend to be in um, large academic healthcare centers. But how can we think about it differently? We know we need doctors to serve patients out in the community. We know that there are pockets of, of dramatically underserved populations across the United States, whether those are inner city populations, whether those are rural populations. Um, now I work with um, our, our tribal health partners and they are in desperate need of of healthcare and access to care. So how can we take our educational programs and in the standards, which are meant to train high quality, excellent physicians, and think about moving them into areas? And that requires a lot of creativity. It requires a lot of trust. Um, it requires the willingness to listen to what the needs of the community are in thinking creatively about how can we meet the needs of the community, but also ensure that we are training people to um, be excellent physicians. So I started that work at Broward, really um, kind of had the opportunity to work um, with excellent educators there at Broward Health and learned accreditation. What does it mean? How do we, you know, what's the regulatory side of it so that we can be successful? And um, fast forward a few years, I got the opportunity to come back to Oklahoma. It was important um, to both my husband and I. We had gone to high school together, so his family is here. Um, and I got the chance to come back to my alma mater at OSU and start working on accreditation, really with the goal of opening um, our new campus, which is our Cherokee Nation campus. Um, really, we, we can get into that in a minute, but really that chance to come home and, and be somewhere. Oklahoma has um, some opportunities to prove our health statistics. Um, we tend from health outcomes to have a lot of challenges and we have large parts of the state where patients have to go a long ways to see a physician. Um, so a lot of rural communities where they don't have access to health. So really the chance to come back to OSU where you know, since their founding in 1972, their their mission was to get primary care docs into rural Oklahoma and have been working on that aligned perfectly with my goals of how do we use education as a as a tool to get physicians to the communities where patients need them and not making the patients come to the physicians. What a fantastic story, and uh, I can completely resonate with you with respect to, number one, not wanting to be any place cold, although it does get cold in Oklahoma, um, and, and it definitely snows more than three days out of the year. Um, but I, I think uh, as importantly, understanding, you know, what, um, uh, you know, the the necessity of addressing some of a, a lot of what you stated right first off the what's going on with respect to rural health um what's very much happening with our indigenous populations um at, not just as a function of rural health but just in that in terms of general access to the healthcare system and all things that i know i'm passionate about and, and excited uh, to hear more from you about um as I stated, this is a DEI podcast or diversity, equity, inclusion podcast, and would love to hear your perspective on what that means and what why uh, um, DEI is important to you. And you you highlighted a little bit about why you you wanted to go back and and help out with the the um, 
the the tribally affiliated campus. But you know, I, I loving to start with the why first, and then we'll delve into your what your current activities are. Yeah. So you know, I think when we we start talking about DEI, especially in the healthcare and healthcare education space, we have to go back to what our primary mission is, and our mission is to care for patients. So when we start thinking about how do we provide care for patients in the way that patients want to be cared for. And what I mean by that is my perception of health and my needs from my healthcare providers may be look very different from, um, from the person who's standing next to me or my neighbors or someone who's in a different community because wrapped up in our need for healthcare is our identities. So when we think about an individual's identity, that's shaped by their childhood, it's shaped by their family, it's shaped by their spiritual faith, it's shaped by their cultural and ethnic background. And all of that comes together for their understanding of what they need, what they need and also what they desire out of their life. So keeping those things in mind and thinking about our job as physicians to meet the needs of patients, to find where they are, to understand what their goals are for their health care and what living a healthy and fulfilled life looks like for them, we have to have, begin to have conversations about how do we educate physicians to be, to be able to do that, to approach those relationships. I think that's where DEI comes into such a critical place in healthcare, because I can't possibly have the lived experience of every patient that I'm going to see. Right. But I can create a learning environment where people with different backgrounds and different lived experiences come in. So as we begin to learn about how we take histories of patients, how we talk to them about their backgrounds, how we think about our recommendations of physicians to patients um, may be received or not received or understood or not understood, those conversations become so much richer when we have people who've had different lived experience in our learning environment. So we can talk about statistics and we know that especially black men are extremely underrepresented in medicine. We know that um, Native Americans, indigenous are extremely underrepresented in medicine. We know that our Hispanics are extremely underrepresented in medicine. And yeah, that's a problem just based on numbers, but the problem with it in, in my humble opinion is more because we're, we're lacking their voices. The lack of having peers from those different backgrounds who can help me be a better physician because I can engage with them, I can have conversations with them about different patients' experiences, about different patients' needs um, is really critically important. So when we think about how we construct learning environments, we have to create learning environments that not only take people from different backgrounds, but allow them and set them up for success. And that means allowing space, recognizing we don't all have the same religion. So maybe the, our traditional calendar and how we set up medical school exams may conflict with some people's religious practices. So how can we create space in the learning environment to take that into account? Um, people may come in with different um, cultural expectations from their backgrounds around what's acceptable 
in the learning environment? What can they wear? Um, do they need to um, have their partners as their learning physical exam be of the same gender as they are? There's lots of little things that we can do it through our learning environment to allow space for people to be successful. And that's really, really important because, and that's where the inclusion comes in is if we if we just pull people into an environment without an understanding that um, their background may be different, maybe their education look different, so they're not used to taking hundreds of multiple choice tests. Right. Um, maybe they aren't used to, maybe they're neurodivergent. And so setting in a classroom, listening to someone talk rather than actively engaging with material doesn't support their learning. So our job as educators is to create space for, as we bring in people from diverse backgrounds, to make sure that they have the supports in place to be successful because we need them in the learning environment and patients need them in their communities. Uh, I, wow, <laughs> what an amazing perspective. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, and so uh, comprehensive because it, particularly thinking about your seat as an educator and understanding that, you know, maybe we can't, meet the needs of everybody, but being intentional about recognizing the fact that um, we are creating a workforce that it meets the needs of our community and by by identifying individuals and letting them self-identify in particular roles and particular needs, it's going to help us meet our, our goals with respect to um, what we're trying to achieve for um, patient care. So, uh, wow, um, I, I love that definition. Um, Let's let's migrate to where you are now and what's what's going on with OSU and uh, the nation's first tribally affiliated medical school. Um, tell us more about that and tell us specifically what you're what you're working on. Yeah, so I love um, getting this question because what an amazing opportunity. You know, I I feel so humbled and so honored to be able to work within this space. OSU in the Cherokee Nation um, really identified long before I was ever involved in the project um, a shared mission, and that was that we need physicians to um, serve for OSU, our rural communities, for the Cherokee Nation and our other tribal partners in Oklahoma, they were having challenges in getting physicians to work within their healthcare systems. Um, so whether that was IHS or um, a lot of our tribes in Oklahoma actually through their sovereignty manage their own healthcare system. So we talk about um, Cherokee Nation Health manages their healthcare um, system across the 14 county reservation. And through relationships, through partnership, through through listening, um, really on the on the part of OSU to what these needs were in the community, um, OSU started putting medical students on clinical rotations, right? One of the best ways to get students exposed and interested in serving a population is getting them out there during that third and fourth year so that they have a chance to be part of the community, see the patients that are being served, and really develop a passion um, and a commitment to serving a population. So they started with those rotations. From there, they grew a family medicine uh, program that was done in partnership. Cherokee Nation in Tahlequah, which is where the school is located, is the capital of the Cherokee Nation. Um, there's also within the community a um, 
a public hospital system that is managed by a trust, um, you know, very small, but um, a community based hospital. And so they the community based hospital, the Cherokee Nation and OSU through a three part partnership developed a family medicine program that opened in 2008 and started training family medicine docs. And they found something really amazing. The family medicine um, residents that were coming through that training program were staying within the Cherokee Nation, or they were going to work for some of the other tribes or for IHS, or staying in rural um, communities that were surrounding. So really great data. So from there, there was a residency program opened with the Choctaw Nation in Tallahena, Oklahoma, which is the extreme southeastern um, part of the state, extremely rural. Um, next closest hospital, it's a critical access hospital. Um, next closest facility is about an hour to an hour and a half away. Um, when patients need to be transferred, it's not uncommon for them to go by helicopter because it's it's a hard place to get to um, and eventually there's been a family medicine program opened with the Chickasaw Nation in Ada. Um, so started with residency training. But again, in listening to the community, there was a deep commitment by the Cherokee Nation to say we we want to have a medical school and how can we do this? Um, and it took a lot of work, um, to be honest. We are in a community of um, less than 15,000. Um, so extremely small. So figuring out how you develop a medical school campus, we get faculty, we support the appropriate education that students need. If we're going to take students into school, we have a responsibility to make sure that they're well trained and well educated. Right. Um, and um, started really working kind of conversations in 2012. Fast forward, I came back and joined OSU in January of, of 2017, and um, it, that was kind of when we put pencil to paper and said, we're going to start the accreditation process and make this happen. The school opened in August of 20, um, August of 2020, right smack dab in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So, and native populations were just ever so slightly affected by COVID. Uh, and um, that's completely facetious for those who want to check out the data. Um, indigenous populations were hammered. Yeah, and we had, yeah. we had a lot of things happening. You know, yeah. one of the, the major priorities of the Cherokee Nation is preserving their language. And so um, when they started looking at the number of native Cherokee speakers, you know, this is our elderly population, and there was extreme concern that with the COVID-19 pandemic, all of the native speakers oh, wow. could potentially um, not exist anymore. Um, in the Cherokee Nation, because of that and their commitment to the health of their citizens, and the amazing thing to me is not only did they make a commitment to their citizens, but to their neighbors. So the Cherokee Nation actually was in really the Choctaw Nation and all the tribes in Oklahoma were extremely aggressive at pushing out vaccine um, and hosting vaccine clinics. So anyone from the community, whether they were native or not native, could come and get their vaccination from the Cherokee Nation, from their healthcare systems that were across the 14 county um, reservation. And really because they recognized that, that these are neighbors, these are the people that um, a Cherokee citizen may go to church with their next door neighbor who's not Cherokee. But if we don't protect our community, um, we're not going to be we're not going to be fulfilling our obligation to care for our citizens. So really a meaningful, amazing leadership that said 
we we can't exist in isolation and we have to work together. And I think it's such a beautiful story because it really talks to the importance of diversity, right? So right. how do we, with our different values and our different backgrounds, come together to recognize that we are neighbors and that we're living in shared communities. And we all share certain things, which is a, a care for one another, um, a care for our families, a care for our communities. And we want um, our communities to be successful and safe and thriving and healthy places. So really amazing work. Um, back to the school, as I said, I feel very fortunate to get to do this work. I am I am not Native American and I always like people to understand that. My husband is Cherokee um, and so I, through, um, through his family, have have been very close to this project and in the struggles that people have experienced in accessing healthcare and and again um you know access to healthcare for people living in the Cherokee Nation jurisdiction is is very good but that's not true for all of our native american tribes across the United States. There's lots of our Native American friends and neighbors who don't have access to health care um, because of where they live or because of how um, how IHS is underfunded. I don't know how to say that in a different in a in a better way. So I apologize if that offends anyone, but IHS is funding to care for to care for our Native American friends and colleagues is is dramatically um, challenging. Um, they're funded at a much lower rate than Medicare. They're funded at about half the rate of what veteran the VA gets for veterans lives. And so when we start looking at the care that's provided in these in these communities, it's it's really remarkable the work that they're able to do with the resources that they have. No, and I don't, A, I don't think it should be offensive to clearly call out uh, the fact that IHS, uh, the Indian Health Service, has been underfunded. I know um, as I've been doing uh, additional reading um, th um, in my efforts as a chief diversity officer in fundamentally recognizing that um, Native uh, American Indian indigenous populations are um, one of the only populations that are guaranteed health care uh, in uh, the United States, and yet access to health care for many of those communities is, as what you described, which is all but non-existent because we can't get clinics, we can't get physicians. Um, and uh, and to your point, it's been underfunded for decades. Um, I, I just read uh, the, the um, uh, White House report uh, from just, I think it was a year or so ago. Um, and for our listeners, we'll, we'll put it in the, the, the reading notes, but it was a pretty well, it was it was depressing. Um, so uh, thank you for calling that out. And, we'll, you know, that that's part of what we're trying to do is educate folks on the fact that these are real things and exist. Yeah. So but I let me focus on something positive, And that's yes, that's the yeah. Cherokee. That's the story of what the Cherokee Nation has done. Um, the Cherokee Nation made a commitment um, probably around 2008, 2009, the same time that they were talking about how do we get physicians to our clinic, that they were going to put a primary care healthcare clinic within 45 minutes of every person living in the 14 county reservation. So wow. they went to a map and looked at their communities and how do we do this? And these clinics have primary care physicians. Um, a lot of the some of the larger clinics have 
both family medicine and pediatricians in them. They've got nutrition services, they've got pharmacy, they have optometry, they have dental. Um, there are case managers and social workers that work within those clinics really a powerful message for how do we get out in rural communities? Because some of these communities are teeny tiny communities. Right. Um, Salisaw, which is um, the closest clinic to where my home is, we're talking about the county, um, you know, has a population, gosh, maybe, maybe 40,000, maybe in the county. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about small communities that really are are struggling for access to care. And the Cherokee Nation said, you know, we're going to go out there. We're going to get primary care physicians there. Here in Tahlequah, where the school is, we are we are so lucky because we sat next door to W.W. Hastings Hospital which is a was an IHS hospital, became at the Cherokee Nation Hospital, and across the parking lot from us is Cherokee Nation's Outpatient Healthcare Center. It's a 450,000 plus or minus um, square foot facility that has specialists. So yes, you've got your primary care docs out in the communities, but you can come here to Tahlequah and we've got cardiology, we've got oncology, we've got rheumatology, um, endocrine, uh, GI. So all of those specialists are here um, that the people can come in. They've also done a great job with telehealth services, recognizing that um, patients may not have um, access to um, reliable cell phone networks or broadband in their homes, but they can come to the clinics, um, those primary care clinics, and um, use the equipment in the clinics to have telehealth visits if they need to, um, to support what's happening. They've done great work with opioid, um, recognizing the opioid epidemic and challenges with that, and have very comprehensive medication um, supported therapy programs, um, both for access to medications, but also access to counseling services to support that. So there are there are positive things happening and there are healthcare systems that are working to address some of these big challenges. And I think it's important to celebrate that because they really should be serving for models not only for for other tribes, but it really should serve as an amazing model for how do we get how do we create opportunities to get physicians out into small communities, but those physicians still feel supported and that they are able to get their patients the care that they need. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And uh, again, I love that it's not only not only the models, but models that are working. And uh, I love the the um, part of what we like to celebrate here are when there are clear instances of how are we eliminating health disparities, and it is through designs, models, things that that you've just highlighted. So thank you for making sure to 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 highlight all of those and and make sure that uh, we including me, know about them. Um, let's pause for a second. I said, let's ask Greg, um, what's on your mind? What you, you've been doing such a wonderful job about answering my questions. What's on your mind? So, you know, right now we're seeing, um, you know, we, we had a wonderful kind of error of looking at DEI as something that's a shared value for all of us for the last two to three years. And we're beginning to see um, questions of, around this what are your thoughts on that how do we how do we balance continuing to prioritize the needs of individual communities against um, people who feel like maybe they're on they're not on the winning side of that equation well it's a great question and i i 
it's been put out in the literature about diversity fatigue, DEI fatigue, whatever people want to call it. Um, I think it, a it's a real thing because it's you know anytime things sound like they're a downer or that you know it's a hey. I'm not on the winning side of this equation. I'm being punished for being white or male or heterosexual or whatever people's perception is. I go back to the the comment that you made earlier, which is um, we are in a community. Um, we have neighbors. We have <laughs> we all really live together. We live together in this country. We live together on this planet. And I think. Um, a lot of what we're doing in DEI is first making sure that we're unearthing things that have occurred. That doesn't mean we're blaming people for what's occurred. It's just stating this stuff exists, right? And the, there are historical consequences that come from that. Now, time out, we're not blaming anymore. Can we understand how we alter existing structures to, I, I hate saying undo, but it's to address um, the the impact and in in many instances negative impacts that it has had on various communities. That is because at the end of the day we all do live together, and if all ships ride with the, <laughs> rise with the tide, and we figure out how to eliminate these other issues, address these other issues, so that way we can all do better as a community. I think we'll ultimately see the benefits for uh, all. It doesn't mean that we're blaming folks. It simply means that we've got to have uh, a reset, understand the impact, and make sure that we are addressing this on a go-forward basis. And and so that way, nobody's losing. The goal is for everybody, you know, and I, I never want to say everybody to win, but it's, it's the goal is we've got to get it so that way we're all doing better, but that requires us to address some, some things that have existed and existed for some time. Oh, I, I appreciate your insight on that because I think I think it's a hard conversation, right? And I think that um, lots of people, in the same way we've talked about, people come from their different position with their different experiences. That's what we see as we begin to have these conversations. And I think um, allowing space in our work environments to recognize that we are all really complex individuals. Right. We're we're more really than the sum of our parts or one piece of our identity. And so the more we create space for people to feel confident in sharing the complexities of who they are um, and support one another in sharing our stories, I think the more we actually improve the environment for everyone. Uh, again, couldn't agree more. I think you stated what uh, I wanted to much more eloquently. So thank you for that. <laughs> Um, Jay, what's on your mind? Because I see you like itching with your itchy trigger finger trying to take yourself off mute. Um, so actually, yeah, I question just kind of building on that, Dr. Bray. I just was hoping you could maybe um, talk a little bit more. I Obviously, OSU and Chick Nation have very shared values with this partnership, but I imagine working together, you know, everyone has slightly different views. So even though you're you're both on this DEI journey, to really collaborate, to work together, and and to really empathize and understand sides, I imagine it's a, it's a lot more complex. Um, and we're just kind of curious, you know, if you could kind of maybe share a little bit of what what does that look like working together? Well, uh, of course it's complex. Um, you know, we're we're talking about a state organization that's working with a sovereign nation. And so there's legal complexities, there's cultural val 
I don't know that there's value, but there's cultural complexities that come into that. Um, probably, you know, the biggest the biggest challenges um, were sometimes logistics in figuring out ways to do things. For example, Cherokee Nation um, built our facility. Um, we have a beautiful 85,000 square foot medical school facility that sits on tribal land. As I said, we're adjacent to WW Hastings across the parking lot. Um, and because of accreditation standards, we have to have a lease for this facility. So we have a state agency leasing property on Cherokee, the Cherokee Nation Reservation. Um, there's lots of rules, as you can imagine, around what that govern that lease that are written into statute. Um, so we went through multiple steps. Um, we had approval from the Cherokee Nation Tribal Council, and we got approval and support from the five um, civilized tribes, which is um, the Cherokee Nation, Choctaw Nation, Chickasaw Nation, Muskogee Creek, um, and Seminole Nation in Oklahoma to say, yes, we think this is a good idea. And then it went to up through the Bureau of Indian Affairs to get approval for us to have the lease that we needed from an accreditation standpoint to offer to offer the education here. So um, there, there's always going to be those challenges. And I think the thing that's important as we come up against those, and it's the unexpected, right? Not realizing, my, my goodness, that's going to be a process that we've got to go through. Um, it, it comes down to communication and trust in how we we talk through and we allow space to hear um, what's happening. You know, the Cherokee Nation um, with construction of this building, 1% um, of the construction cost had to go to art from Cherokee artists. Um, I love that. That means this facility is filled with almost 200 pieces of mixed media art, which you just don't see in medical schools. Um, and we were lucky to get to work with the Cherokee Nation Culture Department and actually putting out the call for that art and saying, you know, what does it look like? So um, one of the things that was important to me is creating space to share stories. So a lot of the art in this building is actually plants that were used um, in indigenous healing practices that were used by the Cherokee pe um, people as part of their healing practices. And the artist went back and wrote on these beautiful pieces of art, and it's everything from photography to paints to sketches, um, what those plants were used for. Um, so we have this art that tells a story that healing comes from different ways um, that our traditional Western medicine that we teach in our classrooms is not the only pathway to healing and that people have traditional healers. Um, so, you know, those those opportunities, that space to explore those was really important in the relationship um, because it's it's not as I said, I am I'm not Cherokee. Um, I'm an educator. My my job and my role is to listen to what the needs are, to listen to what the concerns are, to listen to what the fears and the hopes are, and um, to work through the accreditation process to make sure we're training quality physicians, but to create the space that all of those, those needs, those wishes, those fears, those hopes um, are allowed to materialize and are allowed to um, percolate in such a way that we create physicians that are, are capable of going into that environment. The other kind of interesting thing you know, in Oklahoma, so Oklahoma is just one piece of this, right. and the tribes in Oklahoma, um, we have 
39 federally recognized tribes in Oklahoma, and they are not, we can't put them in one bucket. They're not the same. There's similarities, um, but they have their own language. They have their own traditions. They have their own approach to healing and how they've structured their culture. And so um, we talk about that a lot. Um, and we can't say that just because, you know, um, a Cherokee citizen shared this experience and this view with us, that doesn't mean that we can apply that to every Cherokee citizen. And it certainly doesn't mean that I could apply that to a Choctaw citizen or a Chickasaw citizen. So we have to reframe that as educators. And we have to begin to have the discussion of, you know, a Cherokee citizen shared this with us. So maybe that's something we should ask about. Maybe that's something that we should, as we approach our patients, we should ask what kind of traditional healing um, would, would your grandmother have used? Would you use in your home? Um, is that something that you, that you practice or that you engage in or that influences how you view my recommendations? Because um, they're going to balance that in their mind. So creating space where patients are able to share that. I think as physicians, we get the information to understand and begin to make recommendations because a lot of times we don't know. We don't know what they what they go home and what's been passed down to them to um, to heal the common cold or to heal um, a cut or bruise. You know what what is happening there. So creating that space so that we understand that is really important. Uh, thank you so much. And I guess just one follow up question that I, I definitely hear. Um, listening is such a, a key part of, of being a partner, but I'm wondering also just if, if there's any other maybe tips or thoughts. You know, I live in LA, so I think just a kind of other people that are not in, in the situation that you're in just on how to be a good partner. Uh, so it sounds like listening is a, is a big piece, but I don't know if there's anything else that you would uh, say or, or advice you'd give. So I think all relationships come down to communication. Right. And that's why I put so much emphasis on listening. And when I say listen, you have to actually it's not just hearing it's it's asking questions so that you really understand what those priorities are. You really understand what what the meaning is behind the words, because words um, are are coded thoughts, but there's a lot that goes into that. There's body language, there's um, the use of words can be interpreted in different ways, even within the English language. And so um, as we're listening, listening for true understanding and then providing your expertise, what is it that you know how to do? I know accreditation standards. I know educational methodology that we have traditionally used, but, but using that expertise to hear what the needs are and what the desires are, and then offering, offering up your expertise in such a way that that there's room for well that actually makes sense to us um, and that meets our values and that meets our goals or that that's not acceptable to us and if it's not acceptable then we we move on we look for another approach um, and and you see that in education all the time right we know that people have different learning methodology. Some people are, are very auditory. Some people are very visual. We have kinesthetic learners that need to manipulate things. Um, and we thankfully have got moved away from just that 
wrote telling everyone these are all the things that you need to know to allowing space for people to actually discuss, have discussion groups and small group learning or to go out and seek information and bring it back and use it in, in a meaningful way or to use their hands to be able to associate it in visual clues and other things. So we recognize that in other domains. But I think when we start talking about how do we respect people's different cultures and different approaches to their educational systems, we haven't been as open. We want everybody to come into our system and fit within our rigid kind of rules, rather than recognizing that the rules are guidelines. And yes, we have to meet accreditation standards, but how we meet those standards, um, we could approach things differently. And that challenges us to learn and grow and develop in the same way that we're asking um, people who we partner with to trust us in hearing. But if we don't, if we don't start with that foundation of listening and listening to seek understanding, um, we're, we're really not doing our jobs. Thanks again. That's, that's awesome to hear. As a, as a former special ed teacher, you're like hitting all these points uh, that, that I totally understand. And, and it's great to hear because a lot of times, I think in my experience, not all the time, you know, administrations or leaders always have that same uh, value and, and openness to, to, you know, different learning styles and different being multimodal like that. So that's, yeah, it's like, it's definitely giving me some, some like warm feelings here. <laughs> Well, and I think you bring up something really important with special ed um, education, right? That we have such an amazing opportunity and we hear this all the time in the diversity space of, well, we shouldn't just take people who are unqualified just because they meet um, a background. That's not what we're doing and that's not mm -hmm. what we're talking about. We're creating space for people who approach life a little bit differently. We all approach learning. We approach how we interact with one another. We approach all those things in our own unique way because of who we are. And that's all based on every all the experiences that have led up to this moment in time. So our job is to create a learning environment that supports people where they are to allow them to get to where they want to be. And for, for my students, that means serving their communities. My job is to make sure that they meet those competencies, that they're highly qualified, highly skilled, and are capable of providing the care at the standard that we expect. But how we get them from point A to point B is is what happens in the educational milieu and that means supporting people and recognizing that we all are unique and that we all have unique needs within that learning community i'm, I'm so glad you you brought that up on past episodes we mentioned before a lot of times i had conversations and it is a lot of people they think dei is like tokenism and it's getting unqualified people there and not realizing that you know the resume may look different but it's, it's still showing the same skills and abilities just in it's come out in different ways. So that's I'm I'm glad that you've you pointed that out here. Thank you. Well, we are coming close to our time, and I did absolutely promise uh, Dr. Bray that uh, I would continue to respect her time um, as well as uh, value the time that she's given us. And I know my takeaways from this, you know, Jay highlighted it um, exceptionally well, which is, and, and and Natasha really underscored it, which was number one, listening for understanding. Um, the second one was not fearing complexity, which is uh, which is so frequently people want to dumb things down and like we have to 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 um, 
regress because we're making things overly complicated. No, we're complicated beings. Um, we have created complicated entities um, and uh, making sure that we don't fear complexity, but really embrace it to make sure that we're being responsive to our patients. Um, and, and then um, just again, to your point, celebrating um, that when we're making progress and we're getting it right, making sure that we're holding that up so that way everybody can appreciate it and understand that there are steps being taken um, to uh, address um, what uh, what needed to be addressed. Um, and if that was um, poor outcomes, well, there are ways that we can make things better. Um, it's just about making steady progress. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for your commitment to education and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and thank you for what you're doing, raising voices and allowing um, stories of success and stories of people who are truly committed to improving the healthcare landscape is so important. Thank you. And actually, I hate to, uh, to we're ending on such a high note, but I do have to be the, the taskmaster. And I say there was one last question we did have to ask was, if there are any topics that you would like us to, to, to discuss on future episodes? And are there any other people that, you would like to see us uh, have on. And if you have the ability to make any connections, we would we would love that as well. Jay, you are you are steady Eddie. Um. <laughs> you know, I, I think one of the the powerful things is experience of voices of students um, in hearing their their experiences, especially um, our, our students who come from non-traditional um, backgrounds. Um, meaning, you know, there are underrepresented minorities, they're first generation students. Um, and we have some students that we, I'll be happy to give you names that you could talk to that have some some amazing stories. But um, those to me are powerful stories because you really, you take from, I, I don't, I'm not living this experience with them. Um, I'm at a, a different stage of where I am in life in the work that I do, but but our job is to create space for for our students and our young faculty that are coming behind us to fulfill their dreams and their stories. And so I think anytime we allow them an opportunity to talk about um, what they've experienced, that inspires the students that are coming behind them who may say, because I grew up in this neighborhood or I grew up in this environment or because of the color of my skin, I don't have the opportunity um, to be successful. Hearing stories from students who, who maybe don't have the exact same experience but share that background can be really meaningful. It's a great idea and we'll we will absolutely take any names that you um, put forward. I think that's a that's a wonderful approach. Um, with that, I think we're going to sign off. Thanks for those who listened and uh, look forward to the next episode. And once again, thank you, Dr. Natasha Bray. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a sound physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.